and welcome to Deep North. My name is Eric Pomeranke, and I am joined today in the studio by Iceland Review writer Yelena Chirich. Today, we are going to be taking a look at her 2019 piece, We All Protest. What leads people to protest in a small, peaceful country? And does it make a difference? We are also going to be discussing the most recent protest actions in Reykjavik. At the heart of downtown Reykjavik lies the small, sheltered Östervöttler Square, crisscrossed by walking paths and lined with lilac trees. In the middle of the square, facing the unassuming two-story structure that houses Iceland's parliament, is a statue of Jón Sigurdsson, leader of Iceland's 19th-century campaign for independence from Denmark. At a national meeting called by the Danish government in 1851, Jón led Icelandic representatives in opposing a new constitution which would limit Icelanders' rights. We all protest, they famously called out. Vir mot mailum atlir. The statue of this celebrated Icelandic protester has since fittingly looked down upon many other activists who have occupied Östervöttler, which has since become the gathering place for locals who want to speak out on any issue. While many are familiar with Iceland's mass protests following the 2008 banking collapse, the country's history of protest in the modern era is much longer and more complex, spurred by issues ranging from women's liberation and nuclear disarmament to, most recently, action on climate change and asylum seekers' rights. Yet by many measures, Icelanders are among the happiest people on earth, and Iceland is one of the best places to live. So what is it that drives locals of a wealthy, peaceful country to protest in the streets? And have these protests, minuscule on a global scale, spurred any tangible changes? Winter of Discontent If you follow Icelandic news these days, you may feel as if there are daily protests in the country. This spring, low-wage workers took to the streets following a breakdown in wage negotiations. Since February, a youth-led climate strike has been taking place weekly to urge the government to act on climate change. Asylum seekers have also been protesting for weeks, demanding work permits, due revision of asylum cases, and equal health care access. The fact that so many diverse groups are taking to the streets may suggest there is something connecting their disparate causes. I met with Professor of Philosophy Björn Thorstesson to try to understand what's behind the sudden surge of dissent. Though protesters' issues may be different, Björn says they're not unrelated. I think it's very important to look at the big picture, he observes. These issues are all connected. For instance, the stream of people from abroad is connected to both climate change and economic inequality. We're experiencing a hangover of globalism right now. Björn believes the growing protest movement in Iceland is a sign that democracy is in trouble, not only in Iceland, but around the world. As he says, protests are one manifestation of the fact that democracy, more specifically representative democracy, is in a difficult spot. People distrust the government and their elected representatives, but also political authority in general. Björn adds, however, that there can be very differing reasons behind why people protest. A general feeling of injustice, anger caused by inequality, or even negative feelings such as envy of those who are better off, fear of those who are foreign or different, or fear of the future or of societal change. Looking Abroad 
What drives Icelanders to protest is really not so different from what drives activists all around the world, according to historian Stefan Paulsson. A lifelong activist, Stefan served as chairman of Iceland's anti-war association, called Samtuk Hertnavar Anstaidinka in Icelandic, for 15 years. The Icelandic peace movement, Stefan tells me, has always been closely connected to its international counterparts. The peace movement has always been international, he says. It's always very closely followed what's happening abroad and use the same tools, methods, and discourse. We always see the same movements in Iceland as we see in Europe and the US. They just sometimes happen a bit later. The protest methodology of Icelandic anti-war organizations founded in the late 1950s were directly inspired by the British Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, or CND. While the CND organized marches from the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment in Aldermiston to London, Icelanders marched from the U.S. Army base in Keplavik to Reykjavik to protest the Army's occupation of the country. When anti-war protests around the world started to shift their methodology, so did the peace movement in Iceland. As Stefan explains, Instead of the emphasis being on holding a huge meeting, filling a theater with people, holding speeches and signing resolutions, then people start to do things like set up peace camps, make art installations, or do performances. Artists become very active at this time, and there's more symbolism and strong imagery. Other protests have been closely tied to international movements, not least the current youth-led climate strike, an initiative that originated with Swedish activist Greta Thunberg and has spread across the globe. Pots, pans, and progress. Perhaps the best-known protests in Iceland are those that erupted following the banking collapse. Known as the Pots and Pans Revolution, the series of protests played a role in bringing down the ruling government. Thousands took to the streets in the largest protests the country had ever seen. For lifelong activists like Stefan, it was a strange experience. It was a bit like when the underground band that you've been a fan of for years suddenly becomes mainstream and everyone is listening to them, he joked. While many leftist politicians were optimistic that the sudden momentum would lead to radical structural changes in Iceland, that didn't turn out to be the case. As Stefan explains... There was a certain group in politics that thought, now we can take up socialism in Iceland, no one will vote for the Independence Party ever again. But it wasn't exactly like that. It's not like everyone suddenly became communists after the banking collapse, he quips. Many people went out to protest because they were really rich in 2007 and they just wanted their money back. People who had voted for the Independence Party all their life and switched over to the left-green movement or the Social Democratic Party in 2009, they were always going to switch back. You really have to have broader support to create social change. It takes a longer time. Although the pots and pans revolution may not have had the profound effect that is often attributed to it by foreign journalists, it nevertheless marked a shift in Icelandic protest culture. While previously, protests in Iceland were largely peopled by dedicated activists, suddenly those taking to the streets belong to many diverse groups. It's a change that is still apparent in the country's protest culture, regardless of voting patterns. Not by violence, but by oft falling. When the U.S. Army finally made the decision to leave Iceland in 2006, it did so unilaterally, without consulting the locals. After decades of activism, it would have been easy for the peace movement to take the event as a personal blow. Yet, Stefan says... 
he doesn't doubt the movement's efforts played a role in the army's eventual departure, as well as Icelanders' attitudes towards war in general. As he explains, Because there was always strong opposition to the army here in Iceland, and the Americans always knew that a government could come into power which would decide to expel them, they hesitated to build up the army base here. They had plans to build a base for their submarines here, which was eventually moved to Scotland. If that had happened, then it's much more likely the U.S. Army would still be here. So you could say that the struggle caused there to be less military occupation here, and it was easier to get rid of it in the end. The other thing is that opinion polls repeatedly show that Icelanders are more opposed to military intervention than most other European nations, and that doesn't happen on its own. I give the peace movement a lot of credit for that. At the end of the day, the organization's persistence has been the key to its influence. Stefan quotes Lucretius in this sense. The drops of rain make a hole in the stone, not by violence, but by oft falling. Small protest, small pond. There are advantages and disadvantages to protesting in a country of few, says Stefan. On the bright side, you feel like you can make a difference as an individual. As an example, Stefan points to Svet Runar Hökson, a doctor who passionately headed the Iceland-Palestine Association for decades. The organization succeeded in bringing a once marginal issue into the political spotlight, eventually leading Iceland to be the first Western European country to express its support for Palestinian independence. As Stefan explains, that's an example of what you can do in a small country. You can just see that with enough endurance you have an impact. But of course, in the big picture, it will not really matter whether Iceland supports Palestine. That's the obvious disadvantage. At the end of the day, you matter very little in the global context. Your actions are largely symbolic. Yet, that's largely the nature of activism, says Stefan. It's very rarely the case that in the grassroots struggle you can just find a moment of victory, he says. Much more often, the impacts are indirect, and it's difficult to measure them. Protesters are not indifferent. Björn says it's significant that the public has chosen, time and again, to protest at Östervötlur in front of Iceland's parliament. As he says, It's the oldest and most respected institution of the nation, founded in 930, and by protesting there, people are saying that they're absolutely not indifferent about it. People are both expressing distrust in the parliament and encouraging it at the same time. There are many reasons to worry about democracy today, he continues, but what is positive is that there's a growing number of people in the country, not just in universities or government institutions, who are reflecting on how democracy should be and how it could work best. And that's a good thing. Democracy needs to be under constant review. But, Björn adds, we have to do more than protest. We need to put people in power or change the system so that it reflects this demand this necessity to change society. I have no particular belief that Iceland has a special role in the history of the world, Björn continues. Nevertheless, we saw after the banking collapse that many looked to Iceland and followed its reactions closely. He points to Greta Thunberg as an example of an individual who has made a global impact. Finally, he says, radical change is no horrible fate, rather quite the opposite. It could lead to a better life for everyone. Well, thank you for sharing the article today, Yelena. My pleasure.
So this is a 2019 article. Uh, maybe you can just briefly talk about why address this now. Well, um, there are currently protests ongoing in Reykjavik, very regular protests uh, in relation to the Israeli offensive in Gaza and the situation unfolding right now in Palestine. Uh, so I thought it was a good time to revisit this piece and look at sort of the history of protest in Iceland. Um, why do people protest? What drives people to protest here in Iceland? And does it make a difference in the global scale? It's it's very easy to kind of assume that it makes no difference at all as uh, we're such a small nation and, you know, maybe a very small pawn in, in the global chess game of international politics. But... Uh, Maybe there are some impacts, even though they're indirect. Uh, and it's just very interesting, I find, to, to take a closer look at that. Well, and I think that's fair to say that uh, certainly in the foreign media, Iceland is also very often held up as, um, you know, a role model in some ways. Um, also, you know, maybe also a, a, a thermometer, kind of taking the temperature of like what a certain mood is. Um, you know, I mean, some people might say that, it doesn't matter so much. Um, but, you know, I mean, perhaps one of the freedoms of being a smaller country is that one, you know, does have more freedom to kind of make symbolic statements sometimes as well. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And I think we see that also with neighboring countries. Uh, for example, Ireland, uh, also a, a relatively small island nation, although obviously with a significantly larger <laughs> population than than Iceland. Um I, I see some parallels definitely in terms of sort of political stances and, and public policy and, and things like that. But um, one, one example was, was, for example, the last uh, World Cup in Qatar, mm. which um, the, the Irish government kind of spoke out against on, on a human rights basis. And, of course, that's a little bit easier to do when your country's not participating yes. <laughs> and did not qualify to participate. Um, but... You know, the, it is a very interesting question to me. Um, do these sorts of protests or speaking out, even if you are maybe a smaller country, does that have an impact globally or, you know, even just within your own country? Yeah. So maybe you could just quickly walk through a very brief timeline of some of the most recent protests in Reykjavik uh, in the beginning months of 2024. Right. So, um I mean, I guess since October 7th last year, there's there's been a series of protests uh, in support of Palestine uh, with various kind of methodologies used and various aims. There's There have been public marches from the Ministry for Foreign Affairs down to Österwötlöch, as I, as I describe it in this article, um, the Parliament Square. So these marches have been aiming to to ask the foreign ministry to take more direct action um, in the conflict that's happening in Gaza, for example, to outright condemn Israel's actions, as well as to uh, to extract Icelandic visa holders from Gaza uh, that are still there, because the Icelandic government has actually granted family reunification visas to mostly children, but also women and a few men who currently remain in Gaza, um, but has not taken action to extract them uh, from Gaza. So mm. this is one of the things that the protesters have been calling on the government to do. Um, there have also been a series of protests outside of cabinet meetings 
on Tuesday mornings and Friday mornings when, when the cabinet meets in downtown Reykjavik. Um, again, asking the government to take more direct action, uh, to condemn Israel's actions, as well as support both Palestinians in Gaza and Palestinians that are in Iceland. Um, in terms of, for example, asylum seekers uh, that are here who have still not been, um, whose applications for asylum have not been approved in Iceland. Uh, there was a Palestinian family actually deported uh, last weekend. So these are some of the things that uh, that the protesters have been protesting against. And uh, the methodologies have actually been even more diverse and broad. There's been a protest camp that started last December mm. uh, where several Palestinian asylum seekers and their supporters were camping out overnight in the Parliament Square. Um, and eventually in, in late January, they lost their license to do so. Um, but they continue to protest in, in the square and have a have a base there. Uh, one protester uh, threw red glitter at, symbolically at the foreign minister when he was giving a speech uh, at an event at the University of Iceland. So there's been various kind of protest actions, um, a sort of public uh, kind of performative action in Kringlan shopping mall as well. Um, so it's it's really been several different organizations protesting in, in a lot of different ways uh, in support of Palestine. So many listeners have maybe also heard um, a lot of things about Eurovision uh, for this year. Um, is Iceland participating in Eurovision this year? Uh, what's the situation with that right now? Yeah, so that's another one of, of the things that uh, Icelanders have called on on the Icelandic national broadcaster to take action on. Um, Iceland is participating, uh, well, at least in the pre-competition, the local pre-competition, um, to select a song for Eurovision. Uh, and this competition is run by the national broadcaster, Ruv. Uh, so several musicians, uh, around 500, I believe, signed a petition calling on Ruv to withdraw its per, from, from Eurovision to not participate this year um, as Israel is participating in the competition. So they asked Ruv to withdraw as a form of protest. Uh, Ruv has actually not uh, announced that they will do so. And they have put the decision in the hands of whoever wins the pre-competition. So, oh. so basically they've said, well, the musician who's selected to go to Eurovision they can choose whether or not they, they want to participate. Um, and the implication has been made that if the, the winning selection, the, the artist performing the winning selection does not want to participate, then they would just kind of ask the runner-up. Uh, so it looks like Ruv is not taking a stance directly opposing participation at this point. Mm. So in your article, you also uh, mention the statue of Jon Sigurdsson, uh, the leader of the Icelandic independence movement uh, on Eistavetur Square. Uh, but another statue that, or maybe monument, uh, that some people might not be totally familiar with, uh, sometimes referred to as the Black Cone, a monument to civil disobedience. I've always thought that's just been a very kind of interesting monument, um, you know, uh, for people who haven't seen it. It's essentially a boulder that is riven through by a kind of monolithic black cone that 
it's maybe a little bit reminiscent of uh, like 2001 A Space Odyssey or something like that. <laughs> um, but like it's very kind of, you know, dark and mysterious maybe. Um, and it was erected in January 2012 uh, by the Spanish artist Santiago Sierra. Uh, Sierra sorry. Um, and, you know, this was after the Pots and Pans protest. And, you know, in a sense, it is there to kind of stand as a marker of the importance of civil disobedience, of the possibility to disrupt things. Um, I remember also rather recently, uh, maybe two years ago, there were some uh, MPs who actually wanted it removed uh, from Oestavetlut because they thought it was rather ugly. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think it's just, I think symbolically it's like very important to kind of have this kind of statement in the public space close to power. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if I'm not mistaken, there actually was a controversy about where that sculpture was to be placed originally. Mm. Uh, I believe it was supposed to be placed directly in front of the entrance to the the Althinki building, and yeah, then it, it was kind of actually off to the side, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then it was it's decided no, that's not appropriate. We're going to put it off to the side, which kind of you know weakens the statement of the work mm. um, in its original intention. Uh, and yeah, it is a very interesting sculpture. It's one of my one of my favorite. Uh, sort of statues or, or sculptures, pu- works of public art, I guess, in, in Reykjavik. I just think it's it's a very interesting piece. And its placement as well, just right there by, by Parliament. And this is now where the uh, Palestinian protesters who were previously camping uh, to the uh, on the other side of Westerwetlid, they now have a little uh, sort of set up in a station around, around that monument. So yep. I think its meaning and its significance doesn't go unnoticed by, by people today. So finally, I just wanted to ask you, uh, you know, whether you had spoken with anybody uh, for this piece and, you know, if you can kind of just maybe talk about their stories or. Yeah, I did speak to a couple protesters as well uh, when I wrote this piece in 2019. Um, At that time, there were two asylum seekers that were very active in the the asylum seeker protests that were ongoing. Uh, One of them was Ali Alameri. He came to Iceland from Iraq as an asylum seeker. And uh, while he was still in Iraq, he, he worked as a translator for international forces that were stationed there, including, um, well, I- Iceland was a part of these kind of international forces. They, they were sort of supporting this, th- these actions. Um, but his work eventually made it too dangerous for him to continue living in Iraq. Uh, but Iceland later denied his request for asylum. Um, and I know that since then, Ali has been in and out of the country. I'm not sure if he's he's still here right now. Um, but he was very active in these these refugee-led protests, which I think were a, a really interesting movement because they really they were not led by local activists per se who were supporting refugees, but they were very much led by refugees and asylum seekers um, at the time. And I mean the same can be said of the the camping protest actions and even just the general protests um, here in support of Palestine, they're they're very much you know Palestinians are very active in organizing and participating in these protests, and as well as with the support of locals who who very much support their cause. Um, the other one I, I spoke to, the other active asylum seeker participant, uh, was named Elvis Mukocek, and he was an asylum seeker from Cameroon. Uh, he participated in in the camping at Osuvetlut as well as. Uh, a 58-kilometer march that the protesters made at that point from Keplavik to Reykjavik. So in the article, I mentioned how um, peace protesters 
did this march from from the U.S. Army base to to Reykjavik um, a couple decades ago, and uh, yeah, I mean these actions are kind of repeated, and and I think mm. I think that's very interesting. Um, just also as well what what Professor Björn said that um, these protests, although they may be protesting for different causes, they are all related in many ways. They're related to kind of these global economic realities that that we're living in, and you know, climate change and and all of these things are are kind of interrelated. Well, thank you so much for talking today, Yelena. Thanks for having me. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication in Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.